You are now listening to the Photography Enthusiast Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Photography Enthusiast Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and photos by DLWE. Today, we're going to be going over an exciting new addition to my gear lineup in my personal updates, some news topics, and some software that would probably be better off being spent than other stuff like presets, in my opinion, anyway. Let's get right into it with personal updates. So exciting news, I got my Canon RF 100-400mm f5.6 to f8 is so as you know i may i can't remember if i went into detail but yeah i had troubles getting it the store originally was meant to get it from made an error with the stock and yeah that was a huge hassle for that but i found another store much closer to where i live pre-ordered from them um wasn't sure if i was going to be able to get the lens anytime soon they have apparently one more shipment coming in after the one i just came and then they'll in mid-december or something there wouldn't be any till end of january this lens is really hard to get. Like they told me something like I was ninth on their list and they had 20 something, I think 20 something orders. Just This is just for that store and it was 50 plus back ordered, you know, ones world, uh, state, uh, countrywide or something like that. Statewide, I can't remember which one they said, but either way, it was a popular lens, so it was hard to get. I now got the lens and it's been raining every single day, which I don't want to complain about because I really love the rain, you know, in just a normal aesthetic sense, but I haven't even got the chance to test it out yet because of that. But in saying that, it's really, really nice. So the weight of it is so much better than the Tamron. It's nearly half the weight of the Tamron. You can really tell the difference. When I hold it in my hand, I've only very rarely played around with a 7200, which I think was the F4. I, from, you know, this is a long time ago, but I feel like it was around that same size and weight. It's really, really good. There is something that annoyed me. Not so much the lens created this annoyance, but the annoyance is with Canon, not with the lens. So. One thing I was very curious about is how the autofocus would handle on this lens. So if you don't shoot Canon, then you know this might be a bit boring to you. But for their budget lenses, they've been using an SDM focus motor. And the AF in the 50mm, 1.8, 16, 35, and the 85, it is really noisy. It's not that fast either. It's not stupidly slow. Like, you know, I'd never miss shots because it's that slow, but it could be faster. It could be a bit better. And also the main issue for me is it could be a lot quieter. I hate loud autofocus motors. Like say what you will about Sony, but they're even their more budget lenses, they're very silent, which to me is an important thing. You know, what's the point of having silent shooting if you can just hear the of the autofocus motor going back and forth, you know? But so yeah, tried the lens on. So I was going from pretty much near minimal focus distance to infinity. And this thing is silent. It is so quick as well. I didn't even realize I didn't like the speed of my other lenses until I tried this one. It's honestly, because I never owned anything like this before besides the Tamron, so I didn't have anything to compare it to, but I can honestly say it's probably the fastest autofocusing lens I've owned. I can focus from yeah, near infinity to minimum focus distance, and it's pretty much instant and accurate at that as well, and silent. It's really, really silent. Because of this, it made me sort of be like, damn, I don't like these. I really want updates to the 30. I know they're not going to do it. There's so many more lenses they need to do. And it shouldn't be for like another five, six years minimum, maybe even longer than that for these lenses. But I just, yeah, not happy with the autofocus compared to this one because the nano USM motor is really good. If they had put this in the 35 and 85 and charged a few hundred more, I wouldn't have a problem with it because I know some people might, but for me, I would rather it having that high quality autofocus motor. 
they're like half macro lenses so that probably does pay play into it but the sound the audible issue with it that's where i would hate it if i did video i would very much hate it because it's very loud so anytime you focus in video i think it's a bit quieter in video from what i know what i remember seeing in reviews they optimize it in that sense but it should be the same for stills but yeah Image quality wise, from what I can see compared to the Tamron, it is actually better as well, surprisingly. Well, not surprisingly, I didn't think the Tamron was that bad, but you know, as soon as I saw samples on Flickr and that of the Canon RF 100-400, I could tell that it was better. And yeah, it is noticeably sharper. I'm really happy with this purchase. The fact that I sold my Tamron and that, you know, for technically it was a loss, but not much of a loss because, you know, I was including the other stuff and I didn't have to pay anything out of pocket to get this lens. So that was a good thing. If Canon had released reviews of this, you know, given it to other like Jared Polam, Dustin Abbott, that kind of stuff earlier, so that when the lens was announced and released, we had these reviews already, I would have pre-ordered it ages ago. I figured I probably would, but I, you know, just wanted to hold off just in case because it seemed too good to be true. And now I've got the lens, it is too good to be true. Obviously, if you want something very fast, F4 to F5.6, you know, this would never be good enough for you. But in saying that, you know, it's like, the RF 100 to 500, which obviously has an extra 100 millimeters. I think even the 100 to 400 is about four grand here in Australia. The 100 to 500 is like five grand, whereas this is one grand. So, you know, would it be nicer to have that faster aperture? Yes, but does that mean I have, is it worth paying like four grand more plus getting more than maybe double or more the weight? Hell no, it's not. So I'm happy with my choice. Very happy with the lens. Can't wait to actually get out and use it properly and take photos of nothing but pigeons and ducks because I'm horrible at that. Uh, so otherwise, I tried doing Macro Monday, like participating in the Flickr group, and I got pretty good reaction for my photo. I was pretty happy with that. I also made Flickr Explore for one of my self-portraits as well, which was, you know, crazy because I don't do portraits. You know, you probably know I do mostly still life and street or urban, you know, cityscapes, that kind of stuff. So the fact that I have a portrait in there and a self-portrait as well was pretty cool. It's funny as well because my girlfriend doesn't like it. She thinks that every photo you should be smiling and look happy she doesn't get like doesn't get the whole portrait thing where you should look more serious in some photos you know has to tell the sort of thing but she reckoned it wasn't that good of a photo when i showed her and of course i made explore i'm like damn you know anytime she tells me she doesn't like a photo it should be instant explore right there but yeah i enjoy doing macro mondays as well i'm gonna try and keep doing it i think it's good to have that challenge each week and try and shoot outside my comfort zone because for that one, the theme was something you carry with you and besides your wallet and your keys. And, you know, phones like a very typical, that kind of thing. And I think that wasn't allowed either. So I did my mints, which I usually carry everywhere. And the photo turned out nice. It does make me want a 100 millimeter macro though, to have that again. Because I never even did macro when I owned that lens. So now that I got that sort of temptation there, it's very dangerous. And I don't know how, you know, my gear setup would work. So it's a bit hard. I would like a 120 millimeter macro, 150, that kind of longer focal length. But otherwise, yeah, I'm good for now. Especially since that RF 100mm is like two grand AUD. So it would, yeah, take a big hit on my expenses, which, you know, I don't want to do again. And the last one I sort of go into uh, maybe a bit more in the main topic, but I finally started to experiment texture overlays. So a lot of my favorite photographers on Flickr, they use texture overlays. So if you're not familiar with that, I'll go into it later on. But I experimented that with some photos I haven't posted anywhere yet, but Man, I love using them. They really transform some photos, make them go from very plain and boring to giving them so much character. So really looking forward to doing that. As you would know, released the RF50mm review last week. So moving on to the next one. Should probably do the Tamron next since I've already sold the lens. But I don't know how much of a you know good review that would be. I may work it into the 
RF100 to 400, but it'll be a bit weird if I do that. So I'll probably, I don't even know if I'll finish it now, mainly because it's such an old lens. I don't know who will be buying it now, especially with this lens. I waited too long to release that review. So yeah, that's my bad, but oh well. And last into my stuff, it's lots of rain here in Sydney. So don't know if I'll even be able to shoot during the week to test out my 100 to 400. As I mentioned, sad when it comes to being able to shoot outdoors, but at the same time happy because I love the rain. I love walking around in the rain, that kind of stuff, driving in the rain. One thing, bad thing I'd say about living in an apartment, especially ours, it blocks a lot of the sound out, which is obviously good when it comes to cars and loud people. But at the same time, you don't get to hear the rain. That's the one thing I miss about living in my old house. The windows were so paper thin, you'd hear it, but you could hear the rain. Like It was really good. I miss hearing that. So yeah. So now we're onto the news. So Canon are adding a huge firmware update. Well, I call it huge personally, not so much feature-wise, but what it does. So update to the EOS R5 and R6, as well as some features to the 1DX Mark III as well. So the Canon EOS R3 has the enhanced autofocus ability to lock on and track cars and automobiles intelligently. So Canon has announced this feature is also coming to the R5 and the R6 cameras in December. This may seem like, oh yeah, so what? They're getting a firmware update. Canon don't usually do this, especially they're giving, the R3 is technically now I'd say their flagship body because it's the highest up. They're giving what's available in that to you on your cheaper bodies. If you look at it, especially the R5, yeah, it's quite expensive. So it's still a nice thing, but the R6, so you got in the R6, you got the same autofocus as the 1DX Mark III and the R5. You got the same sensor as the 1DX Mark III. And now you have all these features from the R3 as well. That is really insane. That makes the R6 one of the greatest, you know, bodies in that price range. I know a lot of people want like 20 megapixels, but seriously, it's really, really, really good to see. Although, you know, the 1DX Mark III is getting its own updates. A lot of them are more related to FTP and that, but because it's not mirrorless camera, they can only add certain ones in. So in terms of the R5 and the R6, we can expect upgrades to the FTP, the file transfer protocol functions, enhanced recognition of subjects, including vehicle and body tech detection. So, you know, rather than just do the face, it can detect bodies as well, which is really good. So imagine someone running, you know, running or athletes, sports, that kind of stuff that would really help. Improved face and eye detection with masks. So yeah, even if someone's wearing a mask for some reason, still be able to tell that it is a face and still pick out the eye there. Added white capture mode in live view. So what that is, is manual white balance. So you can choose exactly what temperature you can do exactly, which apparently is meant to be quite good for certain people, like especially with video and that. For me, I remember they used to have that in Sony and actually use it quite a bit. If I couldn't get the exact Kelvin temp that I wanted through, you know, your standard ones, the outdoors, indoors, this light, that light kind of thing, I would actually do it manually on Sony. So it's good to see they're adding that. They added smooth, uh, added EF smooth to suppress lower frame rates in low light. Hadn't really noticed that issue, but I haven't shoot it a lot in low light. So maybe that's why. They also added fisheye support for the RF 50mm, RF 5.2mm f2.8 dual fisheye. So obviously I'm really happy about this firmware upgrade. They're giving so much stuff to it, you know, for free. And it's not something that Canon would usually do. This would usually be for both Canon, Sony and Nikon, it would usually be like a new version, like the Mark II, but it's all coming in as part of it. So to me, it tells me one thing, you know, like number one, Canon are getting really competitive, which is really good. And number two, it's telling me I can expect longer life cycles. So previously with, you know, DSLRs, you'd see an upgrade every four years. Now the EOS R and the EOS RP had very short life cycles. I think only two years, but they weren't, I feel like they were just filler bodies. Not saying they're bad, but they were just there. So Canon had something until the R5 and the R6 could launch. Now 
you know, you would think maybe they're going to replace the R5 and the R6 every two years, like what Sony would do. But if you look at Sony, they've started to slow that down because previously, you know, the earlier models, they were catching up. They were honestly, it was a new technology. There was so much growth they could do, but their products are really mature. They're honestly, the Sony cameras are so good right now. So in terms of autofocus, ergonomics, battery life, pretty much everything, they're really well-rounded products. There's not much areas you can really improve easily. So when I say not much areas, you know, you can always improve dynamic range, can always improve electronic shutter, rolling shutter, that kind of stuff. But that stuff is a little bit harder because it's really related to sensor improvements. So it's not something as simple as like, you know, adding a larger grip, improving battery life, that kind of stuff. So they've, I think they've realized now that's why they're not releasing as frequently. Like usually the A7 Mark, the A7R series will come out every two years, but now it's been more than two years and it's still not out. So they've sort of realized and slowed that down a bit, which is not a bad thing. I prefer it to be honest, but it looks like in my opinion that Canon are going to hit, do the four year cycle again, which I'm all for, you know, the R6 Mark II, when it comes out, who, who that came out, what, 2020? So 2024, when that comes out, I want it to have, you know, higher res sensor maybe, but then keep the high FPS, maybe backside illuminated, that kind of stuff. I don't figure we'll get stack sensor because that'll make it a lot more expensive. But, you know, I want significant upgrades. I want to be blown away and think it's something that I cannot resist by, not something that be like, ah, I can skip this one, you know? Needs to be blow me away each version. Same with the R5, Mark II, all of it, you know? Next up, Nikon 28mm f2.8 Z mount lens has been announced. So Nikon has announced the new Nikkor Z. So for their mirrorless mount, 28mm f2.8 lens for its Z mount. Designed for both crop sensor APS-C and full frame mirrorless cameras, the lens promises to be fast as well as small and compact. It has a total length of only 1.7 inches and weighs 5.46 ounces, which is also 155 grams which makes it the smallest and lightest among the Nikkor Nikko Z-Prime lenses. The lens is constructed of nine elements in eight groups, two of which are spherical elements. It features a maximum reproduction ratio of 0.2 times a close minimum focus distance of 0.63 feet or 0.19 meters and has a maximum angle of view of 53 degrees on DX format cameras and 75 degrees on FX format cameras. The front element is 52 millimeters and the lens uses a multi-focusing system that realizes natural rendering across the entire shooting range as well as allows for fast and accurate autofocus control. Nikon does not specify note which like autofocus mode the lens uses however they add that the lens was made with video recording consideration in mind and as such promises that it has extremely quiet operation stable exposure and effective focus breathing compensation. There's been a few, a uh, story I covered a week or for in one or two episodes ago was Olympus or someone that had a new lens came out and they said they're pretty much similar things. So I wouldn't be surprised if some of these companies are sharing AF motors and it sounds to me like an STM motor, not a USM motor, but whatever it is, if it's quiet, that's all that matters and it's accurate. That's, yeah, what it matters. December launch for $300 along, although this may be delayed due to the global supply issue. This looks like a pretty good lens based on the photos I've seen. It was quite nice as well. 28 millimeters seems to be quite a popular focal length. You know, I see a lot of people saying they want Sony to make a 28 millimeter GM. I've seen some Canon people say they want that as well since Sigma made a 28 millimeter f1.4. I don't know how popular a 2.8 lens will be, but I don't think it's bad. I think it's quite small, compact, looks like a good travel lens as well. So to me, it's a win on Nikon's part. And the fact that they're releasing more lenses is definitely good for them anyway. 
Our last piece of news is Fujifilm Instax Mini Evo Hybrid Instant Camera has been announced. This camera has 10 lens modes and 10 filter options to offer 100 different photo combinations. The Mini Evo was designed to give photographers the flexibility to choose which image to instantly print, which to share, and which to store for later as it has a micro SD card slot. Fujifilm is also launching a new Instax Mini Stone Grey and Instant Film, which has a new contrast compared to the typical white bordered look. The company says that it better provides eye-catching contrast against vividly printed images. If you don't know, grey is a neutral color, so it helps those colors pop. Aside from the obvious things, you know, the film will be available in a single pack of 10 exposures for $15 and will be launching in February for $200. We own quite a lot of Instax cameras. My girlfriend has a habit of buying them and buying another one and never using any of them. So we got SQ6, Mini 9, I think it is, and we also got a printer. She actually uses the printer the most and she likes that one best because she likes the iPhone photos just being printed on a Polaroid film. But when you look at the Polaroid pictures, they do have a different look to them. They have, you know, actual rendering from that film look. I personally like them better where she just likes the iPhone. But at the same time, she thinks the iPhone's the best camera you can get. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. That's pretty much it for the news, you know, because we've been talking quite a bit about everything else. So on to the main topic. Now, although it's best to get you know, the photo as right as you can and possible in camera. Editing is still an important part if, you know, you want to get the most out of your images and the most out of your camera and lenses. You'll find, you know, when you first start editing and learning photography, you'll tend to over edit or sometimes, you know, you're under edit, then over edit, then it sort of balances out. Then you do one of those combinations. For me personally, I wanted to make it look natural. So I, you know, what I thought was natural anyway. So I barely edited, then I over edited really badly and then yeah, balanced out and then just been growing since then. For me personally, when I do my edits, I focus mostly on colors, contrast, that sort of stuff, just colors and contrast. For me, those make the biggest difference, especially for color. Like you'll find majority of my work is related to color. That's what I find most important. And sometimes I can re-edit an image multiple times and get different results just because, you know, if you're not looking at the color the right way or if you have any tinting on your screen, that kind of stuff can affect it. But one thing I don't really use, I know a lot of people like using them, a lot of people sell them, but it's presets. For me personally, I never really use presets. The closest I've ever used to a preset is just applying lens corrections. Now I do use actions, which are different in Photoshop. So technically they're kind of the same thing. It's more just automating it. So, cause you know, in Photoshop, Rather than presets, you would use actions. So for example, when I do my sharpening, I use a high pass filter. I have that all set up, you know, so I don't have to do it from scratch every single time. I just have to adjust the value based on how much sharpening I want. The same thing goes for frequency separation. So frequency separation, you're putting your textures on one layer and colors on another. So that way, if you're editing portraits, you know, like for my one, you want to remove pimples, you would use the texture layer. If you want to remove red spots and blemishes, which sadly I have a lot of, you would use the color layer. So, you know, those kind of ones just to get that set up, I would always use that. I even have one for color correction. But aside from that, I don't really have any for color, actual color grading. I've experimented with them, but I always end up just deleting it and redoing it because I would always do as an experiment, color correct my images, apply my color grading preset action, you know, and then see how it looks and sort of disable, hide that layer then do it again from scratch myself and I'd always be much more happy with the way they look normally. I mean, when I do it sort of manually every single time. So these days I just do that. The most I would do is if I'm, you know, took two photos side by side 
all part of the same set, you know, say I'm taking product photos, one of the front of the camera, back of the camera, side of the camera, I just copy and paste all the settings over from one to another. That's, or, you know, obviously if you're doing a panorama, you would do that, but I don't really mess with few sets personally. Now, aside from, you know, obviously your real obvious editing programs like Lightroom, Photoshop, Capture One, you know, I don't know what other ones there are. I, I wouldn't say Lumina AI because it's more of a specialty one, but you know, out of those kind of ones, there's other software that I would recommend. Some of these you'll find useful, some not, you know, the first two, who knows, the rest I reckon are very good. All comes down to how you shoot, what your style is, that sort of stuff. So the first one, WebP for Photoshop. So if you don't know what WebP, it's another image format. So some of you may have heard of a program called JPEG Mini. So what JPEG Mini does is it pretty much compresses a JPEG without any noticeable loss in quality. Now with that, obviously a JPEG, pretty much everything except a JPEG is one of the most common, you know, the common, most common photo format. You're starting to see new ones like HEIF or HEIC, high efficiency image format or compression or whatever. Those ones are starting to become a bit more up and coming, but they're still not, you know, as common as JPEG. With WebP, that one's been around for quite a while, about 10 years now, I believe, from what I remember reading. But it's not that really well known. In all honesty, I never even knew about it until maybe a year ago when I heard about it on a WordPress meetup by this guy, Will Brown. He from WordPress Sydney. He does really good you know, like WordPress cookies, tutorials on that kind of stuff. So check it out if you want. No plug, you know. Also, just to mention, none of these, no sponsorships for any of these, no affiliate links. These are purely just what I use and what I could recommend or what I've tried and I recommend getting if you're into that. Now, so with WebP, so that's, if you have a WordPress website, I don't know if Squarespace and Wix and all those other ones except WebP, you'd have to look into that. I personally only know about web, WordPress, but it's really, really useful and it can reduce your file size by a huge amount, like more than 50% easily. I've had images that have gone from like two megabytes down to 400 kilobytes or even less just by using WebP. And the quality loss, I can't see any quality loss personally. I would, you wouldn't even know if there's any difference. The only main downside is obviously you can't use it everywhere. You can't be posting these on Twitter and I don't believe so anyway. They don't think they support it. You can't post them there. And also Internet Explorer doesn't support them. So if you put it on your website and someone's using Internet Explorer for some strange reason in this day and age, it won't display properly in there. So those are the only sort of real downsides I can see from it. Now in the show notes, there'll be links for all these. So with this WebP for Photoshop, it's a free plugin from Google. You just pretty much, it's really easy to install. It has instructions there. You just drop it in your program folder. And then when you're exporting an image, make sure you put it down to 8-bit. And then when you go save as, you'll have the option of selecting WebP in the file format. And it'll give you, come up a little dialog box where you can choose the settings of how you want to do it. Works really, really well. And I personally definitely recommend using it if you have a website. Because, you know, the larger your image size, the longer your time to first byte. So when someone puts in your website address, you know, photosbydaily.com, that's like how long it takes for the server to respond. And the more information it has to send, you know, large image files, your static HTML files, CSS, style sheet, all that kind of stuff, it's going to be longer and longer. So if you have really small images, then, you know, it'll load much faster. So if you look at photos by DLW.com, even TPE now, I've changed it as well. Previously, I would use images that were maximum 1600 pixels wide. You know, for some people, this might sound like a good amount, but for me, I personally, you know, I've been using a 1440p display for I don't know how many years now, probably like nearly 10 years, like actually not probably eight years, eight years I've been using it for. So I'm like big displays, I like high resolution. If I wanted to use an image that was say 2560 wide 
on the wide end, which is usually the max WordPress supports unless you change it. I'd be looking at three, four megabytes sometimes per image. So that's obviously way too big to be downloading, especially for mobile. And if someone's, you know, on limited internet speed. With WebP, I've now managed to use that image size without any, you know, few hundred kilobytes. It's way smaller. So even using 1600 um, wide, I was getting file sizes above one megabyte all the time. Now I'm using nearly double, you know, almost double, not quite, but almost double the file size, like image size, sorry, pixel size, 2560 wide instead of 1600 wide. And I'm getting like a few hundred kilobytes per image, sometimes even less, depending on what colors and that, what ISO, all that kind of stuff the image is. Well worth your time. Definitely good if you have a website and you want to display your images and your web host or whoever it is, whether it's WordPress, WordPress definitely, but whether it's Squarespace, Wix, any of those kind of ones, support WebP, definitely look into it. The next up, this one may not be for everyone as well. It's called Gigapixel AI. You may have heard of it. So Photoshop recently brought in a feature. I think it's called Super Resolution. I'm not sure if Lightroom has it as well, but pretty much it's upscaling your image. So say you have a 20 megapixel image, you can upscale by two times, four times, that kind of stuff. And you know, sometimes you do need more megapixels. So for example, someone like me who has a 20 megapixel camera, when I took that photo of the moon that time, obviously, you know, it's 20 megapixels. So I need to crop in on it to be able to get a decent, you know, decent sized image of it. After I was done cropping, the image was only from down from 20 to about four or five megapixels. This is obviously very, very low. What you could do is if you have gigapixel AI is you can increase it. I've Never gone more than two. Anytime I've used it on a trial on that, I've only ever just done two times. I think four is okay. If you go too high though, you will notice the difference. But at two times, I honestly cannot see any difference at all. But yeah, you just do say two, four times, then you do your crop after. And then you still have possibly, you know, the same image. If you crop by, say you could increase your image from 20 megapixels to 40 megapixels using that then you crop it by 50%. You'd still have your 20 megapixel image, but it will be a lot more, you know, zoomed in kind of thing. So it works well depending on what your kind of situation and what you need. Also, how many megapixels your camera is. Obviously, it doesn't do a perfect job, but it does really well. And fact is, it can only get better. I'd say anyone who has like a lower megapixel camera that does a lot of heavy crops, this would definitely be worth it. Or if you, you know, have a lower megapixel camera and you want to print really big, this could definitely help as well. I believe they do a free trial. So if they do, you know, just give it a try. See if you can notice any difference. See if it works well for you. If it does, maybe worth it for you. I believe they usually do sales quite often as well. Topaz Labs, they do sales on this. And if you just Google the program you're looking at buying, you know, a lot of people will have affiliate links. No, I don't, but a lot of people do. And you can get like 10, extra 10 or 15% off as well and get it super cheap at the time as well. So might be better for you that way. The next up, Next one up is really good. So it's called Lumenzia. So if you don't know what it's for, it's for luminosity mask. So when you're dealing with luminosity masks in Photoshop, what it does is it's letting you select a particular luminosity. So either your highlights or your shadows. So for example, say you want to make your photo brighter. If you add a, you know, uh, say a brightness layer and then you increase the brightness, you're just going to be increasing the whole image. But whereas if say you just want to increase the shadows only without having to blow the highlights. You can use Lumenzia to select just the darker parts of the image. It creates a selection based off that onto a new layer. And then you pretty much can just adjust that selection only. So you don't have to worry about blowing out other areas. Or for example, you're doing some bracketing. You took some photos at sunset. You got one photo for the foreground, perfectly exposed, and you got one photo for the 
sky that's perfectly exposed. So say, you know, because there's lots of shadows in the foreground, you blew, completely blew the highlights in your sky. All you would need to do is select, you know, say L6, because it comes in levels, different levels. The, you know, L1 would be, um, finds most light areas in the image, whereas L6 would be the, only the most highest. So if it's blown, it's probably going to be L5 or L6. You'd select that, which would select all those bright areas. Then what you could do is just simply do it as a selection and then use your mask tool and brush to paint in the areas of the other image. Obviously, it would be a bit different if you're doing it. You know, you technically put them both in, um, put, say, the sky above at a mask. So that way, you know, you can paint over what areas you want. And that's when you do your selection and then you paint over it. So it works so many ways. It's really, really powerful and makes it a lot easier. Obviously, it's good that, you know, Greg Benz has made this. It would be nice if Adobe built something like this in or even better, just, you know, because he's put so much work into it, bought it off of him and put it in there. That would be the nice way of doing it. Maybe just add their own branding or whatever in it, make it their own panel. But if you don't want to buy something like this, apparently that you can usually get free actions off people to do this. I tried it before, but I found it didn't really work as well. This is a lot more powerful because you can even use the eyedropper tool to select the range of what uh, tones you want. It's a lot, lot easier to use. To be honest, I know I'm a bit stupid, but I find it even easier than the new masking tool in Lightroom. Since they changed it and include the feathering in there, I'm just horrible at it. I push it too far now when I try to edit it. So yeah, definitely worth checking out. For me, it's probably a really, really useful one. I believe he does sales on it as well quite often. Just, you know, want to wait for a sale, just wait for a sale. But either way, it's really good. So yeah. Now the next one I mentioned earlier, and it's something I knew about for a while, but I only recently just tried. So texture overlay. So if you look into texture overlays, what you're doing is you're pretty much taking, I didn't know what they are. So previously I had no clue what they were, how they're made, that kind of stuff. I honestly thought people were making them in Photoshop and then just doing it, but it's not. So say something with texture, think about tiles, concrete, a wood wall, a wood table, um, your couch, leather couch, that kind of stuff. All of it has texture. So what these texture overlays is someone has taken a photo of it. So we'll just use, for example, a concrete floor. Someone's taken a photo of it. What you're doing is you're taking that photo of it, putting it over the top of your image and using a blend mode, such as a overlay, soft light, hard light, multiply, depending, you can experiment which one look works best, but you're using that. And it's sort of adding those aspects into the image without actually, you know, having that exact texture there. Bit harder to describe over audio only podcast. What I'm going to do is in the show notes, there'll be a link to a, fo- a tutorial on it. Whose tutorial will probably either be Learn or Pixar Perfect, depending which one I can find easier. But yeah, we one of those, but it works really well. It can honestly transform your images. So I took a photo just the other day of my new pop vinyl, a Dragonite pop vinyl. I thought, yeah, it looks pretty nice, you know, but I've always known they look a bit boring at the same time. It's just subject, bokeh, nice background or plain background. Whereas when you add the texture overlay, it just does something to it, just transforms the image. It adds so much character to it. It honestly makes it look so much better. Not every single texture would work for every single photo. For me personally, you know, I got ones off Etsy. So you can, if you search texture overlay on Etsy, a lot of people sell them. The one thing I'd say that you want to look at is, especially is, you know, how, what resolution they are. So if you have, you know, like the A7R Mark IV, which is 61 megapixels and you get a texture overlay, it's only 20 megapixels. It might not work, might, should be okay, but wouldn't look as good as if you get one with the same resolution as the images you're working with. But you can even make your own. Once I actually looked into how to make them, I had even more appreciation for the people who sell these because, you know, they're not easy. 
So some people will actually stain and fold paper and make textures that way and then photograph that. It takes a lot of work, so it's not something you can easily do. To be honest, I had this grand plan of making my own because I thought they were really easy and then selling them on Etsy. But yeah, once I realized how hard it is, I know that is not possible. I don't have the artistic skill to be able to make them. So yeah, otherwise, yeah, it's pretty much something you should really look at. If you do still life photography, like product stuff, it can really look good. Otherwise, if you do portraits, I know a lot of people use them for portraits as well. So that's another use for it. Really comes down to what you're shooting your creative vision and you know how much you can make it work but yeah those are editing tools and add-ons you can get for photoshop lightroom that kind of stuff well technically not lightroom for some of them should probably be worth mentioning denoise and gigapixel gigapixel ai both have standalone products as well as plugins for photoshop and lightroom so those ones um you can sort of look at the next one and last one which i just mentioned is denoise ai now this one can really honestly work wonders so Sometimes you really need to bump your ISO up really high. So for example, you know, you're doing sports, wildlife, that kind of stuff. And you have a photo where, you know, you had to bump the ISO up crazy high, like ISO 3200, that kind of stuff. And you got the image, but then it's, you know, in focus, but it's just too noisy sort of thing. Denoise AI works much better, in my opinion, than the built-in noise reduction. So I had an image of a snake that I took at the zoo that was at like 32,000 and it was really noisy, but there was still, you could sort of see the detail, but it was just really noisy. I ran it through there and it's honestly super clean. You would think it's at ISO 100 because of how clean the image is. This application isn't always perfect. It can create artifacts depending on how you do it, but it's one of those things where you can just experiment. What I tend to do depending on the images, I myself will create in Photoshop, I'll create a new layer. Once I create the new layer, I'll apply like open this, run whatever I need to adjust it as I need to and apply it to that. And if there's any areas that have had artifacts in that, I'll just use a mask to remove it. I find that's usually the easiest way for me. Majority of the time it does do a good job though. And I don't use it all the time, but you'll find if you notice my photography, it become a lot less noise in all my photos. It's because of that, especially at web sizes. You don't really notice if they've been smoothed out a bit because of that. You know, stuff like sky and water, you can always use it and it won't really matter. Whereas, you know, with buildings, anything with actual texture on it, you may notice. That's why where I would come in, I would use that, use that, make its own layer, add a mask, then just paint in over the areas like sky and water. It gives an overall appearance that the image is, you know, much sharper than it is, or not much sharper, cleaner than it is, but you're still retaining detail in your subject. So yeah, that's pretty much all the editing things I would recommend looking at before you look at presets. But that's just me. That's what I like to do with my photography. So everyone's different. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you did, make sure to subscribe. Also be great if you could leave a review for this podcast on iTunes or whatever you listen on. That would be great. If you'd like to suggest a topic, there is a link in the show notes. I'll, depending on what it is, if it's you know something besides gear versus gear, I'll try my best to cover it. If it's gear that I've owned, I could probably cover it. But yeah, otherwise, you can find me at photosbydoe.com and on Twitter at photosbydoe. Those are the two places I'm most active along with my Flickr. If you want to hear more episodes, reviews, tutorials, you can go to thephotographyenthusiast.com. All these links are in the show notes. So thank you very much for listening. Enjoy your fortnight and I'll be back again. See ya.